Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today on the show, we are revisiting the interview I did with one of my all time favorite comedians, Tig Notaro. Now, thanks to her role in Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, now streaming on Netflix, she's also a badass action star. Tig and I talked on Zoom last summer, exactly eight years after she shocked the comedy world by walking on stage at the Largo Theater in Los Angeles and announcing that she had been diagnosed with cancer. She opened up about what it feels like to finally be completely healthy and why she hasn't missed the stand-up stage as much as she would have thought during the COVID lockdown. We also talked about her new podcast, Don't Ask Tig, the upcoming movie in which she will play first lady to Jennifer Aniston's president, her extremely complicated history with Louis C.K., and a ton more. So let's go to that now. Here's me with the great Tig Notaro. I'm so excited to have you on this show just because I'm such a huge fan of yours. You're kind. Has it been tough to be stuck at home at all and especially not able to get up on stage, not able to perform in the way that you normally would be? Uh, You know, I think it's funny because I feel like I struggle with moments where I think, gosh, am I not a real comedian? (laughs) Because after I had children, I was okay with scaling back my time and with doing the road or getting up on stage around town. And I felt really happy and fulfilled being home. And then I felt really happy and fulfilled when I actually went on tour and performed. When I do my local Largo show in Los Angeles, I'm usually on stage for an hour and a half, really trying out new material and trying to make the best of my time. And then here I am in the middle of a pandemic and we're taking it very seriously and we really are home and I'm okay with it in that I'm really enjoying being with my family and I love comedy. If somebody said (laughs) tomorrow it is back, I would be thrilled to be on stage, but I'm also, I've been doing podcasts and I have my own podcast coming out and it's it fulfills the stand-up side of me to some degree. Was there a time in your life where you really felt like you had to be getting on stage every night or or you weren't fulfilled? Yeah, I would say up until probably up until I met Stephanie and I really wanted to spend the majority of my time with her and I also wanted to maintain my interest and career, but I do feel like there is a balance that works for me and it's not at all. I know there are comedians that are married with kids that are out at venues every night, multiple venues. And I, all I can say is we're (laughs) different people and 
I don't know. Uh, we also, Stephanie and I share the responsibilities with the kids just down the middle. We're both getting up at five in the morning with them and we're both making their meals and we're both doing everything. So it's, and maybe the other comedians are too with their spouses. I don't know, but we are fully in it together. And I wake up at five and, you know, even my Largo show that used to be at 8.30, I asked the owner Flanagan if I could move it to seven (laughs) o'clock. Yeah. But yeah, I used to get up numerous times a night and I don't miss it. Yeah. Well, but I miss stand up, but I'm also okay with time home. And it's giving me a chance to to do other things. Yeah, I did see that you you do have, still have some tour dates on the on the schedule for the fall. Assuming that that happens, are you working on new material? Do you have quarantine material ready to go, or how do you how do you feel about getting back up? I feel great about getting back up. I'd be curious to see if those dates really stick. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I have material from right now. I think it's kind of impossible to not. It's a completely new experience. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. I have a special that it hasn't been announced yet that I sold to a network before the pandemic. Actually, the day the pandemic, <laughs> went, the day that lockdown happened. <laughs> that must have been a day of mixed emotions. <laughs> yeah. And then I also have a new hour of material that wasn't sold for the pandemic that I often think about. How do you return to that if if I even do return to it. Does it feel so outdated at this point? It's just because of the last four months. Yeah, it's it's really, but it's also something I don't, I don't stress too much about. It'll do what it will. Mm-hmm. And now you have this podcast coming out, as you said, uh, Don't mm-hmm. Ask Tig, which is, it's an advice podcast. Is that the, is that the idea? That is the idea. You know, I think sometimes there's real advice given and then it can also go a little haywire, but I can't imagine that if people are familiar with me that, they would expect it to be one or the other. And I have noticed that over the years when I've guested on advice shows, that even when they're comedic, I really enjoy trying to come up with the best (laughs) advice. I I really want to help somebody. And uh, I feel like I've had a lot of experiences in life that I wasn't quite sure if, if, if it made sense for me to have an advice podcast, but after (laughs) I really thought about it, I was like, Oh, I I actually have been through a good amount of things and I, I know how to navigate life pretty well. And, and if you find that I'm giving bad advice, then you can, we can all point to the title, which is don't ask Tig. What kind of questions have you been getting? Because I know you've already kind of started and been soliciting questions from people. And Yeah, a lot of relationship questions and a lot of how do you deal with people that have differing political views. And Yeah, that's a big one right now. Yeah, pandemic stuff. And yeah, I, I think... A lot of different stuff. When you look back on your comedy career, do you have advice that sticks out in your head that somebody gave you that really actually affected you or or changed the way you you thought about things? Yeah. I remember Sarah Silverman telling me years ago that it's good to, as a stand-up, keep options open to broaden your horizons if you have an interest in writing or acting or directing, producing, whatever it is, writing a book. Because sometimes it just can, <laughs> the road gets kind of narrow sometimes when you're, when you're just doing stand-up. And I never considered that. 
And I'm thankful that I did take her advice because I feel like I've tried every avenue in, in trying it all. I've found what I don't want to do, which is just as important as finding it makes what I want to do even more important and more fun. What's an example of something you tried and said, that's not something I want to do again? I would not want to carry a show by myself again. And when I started with One Mississippi, I carried the show myself the first season. And going into the second season, I realized that I have these stories I want to tell, but I don't and I never have really identified with being an actor, that that's my thing, even though I've enjoyed the acting gigs that I've gotten, including One Mississippi and now Star Trek and everything I do, I've, I'm doing it because I enjoy it. But with the second season of, of, of One Mississippi, I brought up to the producers that I just want to not be so focused on me anymore. And I felt like my stepfather's storyline was just so compelling. And I felt like my brother's storyline was so compelling. And I felt like there was enough where you could move away from me. And I wouldn't have to be in every scene. Even though somebody would still be like, yeah, but you were carrying the show still. I was the star of the show, but I just, it does not interest me to carry a show like that in that way, in that way. And I also don't really have an interest in, you know, wearing all hats at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that can be a lot. I really loved that show. And I felt like, yeah, the, the second season, I think, got even more sort of deeper and richer. And then, of course, the show got canceled by Amazon and you weren't able to make more. Was that more of a disappointment or a relief at the time? Or how did you kind of feel about it not moving forward, given how you were feeling about not wanting to carry your own show? Well, and again, I did want to carry. I still wanted the show. I wanted to do the show. And we had a million storylines for season three. You know, if some crazy world happened where... Amazon or FX, like, oh, my God, we got to bring back this yeah. the reboot. show. Yeah, <laughs> reboot One Mississippi. I would happily do it, and I would have a million things to say. And I also felt like where we ended on season two, even though it wasn't the end of the show, it felt like a reasonable place to end if this must be canceled. And then there was also a part of me that felt like, there was a, an element of negativity that was tied to the show through a particular producer that I was kind of, a part of me was excited to just get that word of, okay, it's been canceled and be like, all right, let's shut that chapter and I'm ready to move on in life. And that was in no way going to be the end of what was to come. You know. Yeah. Did you, you felt like the Louis C.K. thing kind of hung over the show in a way that you didn't like? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was hard to do interviews without, just, he was just in there. and He's always in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And his names on the episodes. And so it would have people be like, wait, why? I have to... Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm happy to move on from that. Yeah, I know that's the case, you know, with uh, with better things, too. Like, his name is still on that show, even though he has nothing to do with it. And so it's a very odd thing, yeah, I'm sure. It's a weird uh, thing. And so it's nice to 
to move on. And let's say the craziest thing in the world happens and somebody brings one Mississippi back, I bet it would come back without that name (laughs) on it. Yeah, yeah. Coming up, Tig opens up about how the tragedy and illness that defined the earlier part of her career has given way to something sillier and more joyous, especially now that she's finally cancer-free for the first time in eight years. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. We have had so many incredible comedians on this show, including Sarah Silverman, Mike Berbiglia, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswald, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to the show. So, you know, you mentioned that you you might be good at giving advice because you've been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And the earlier part of your career, sort of the, the... part of your career where you really blew up was so defined by tragedy and and illness and and all of that. And I'm wondering if it has kind of how that affected your approach to comedy. Did it make you want to get more personal or did it make you want to kind of push away from that at some point and say, I want to get sillier? I think both. And, and that's what I'm always trying to do is not have these definitive answers of what I'm going to do because I, since 2012, and this is actually my, this week is my eight year anniversary of getting my diagnosis. And yeah, July 25th is my diagnosis date. And since 2012, I've had a lot of ongoing medical issues and pain and surgeries and hospitalizations and tumors and cysts and all sorts of stuff that that's no fun no it hasn't been but it's also created a lot of stories and humor and so when it's made sense to share I've shared and then when it's made sense to pull back because I am married with kids now and I'm not I feel like I have more than myself to consider so I pull back I think on that level where 
I share this, but I don't share that. Whereas if it was me alone, I would just maybe share everything. But yeah, I'm, I also love nonsense. I love silliness. And, I, and it was so fun when I was doing my show, which is, I don't know, indefinitely on hiatus under a rock with Tignotaro. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, uh, well, thanks. It was fun because even though it gives me the opportunity to be silly and nonsensical, there is still... It's authentic. It's real. I really don't know who I'm talking to. And it's also a really nice moment to connect with celebrities that are likely used to being recognized and being asked on a late night talk show what project is coming up or what who used a whoopee cushion or what whatever, you know, who was the prankster on set and and none of that comes up on my show. It's just um, kind of who are you and what do you do and what's your family? I'm so I'm so fascinated by this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's you you interview celebrities without knowing who they are and then try to figure out who they are over the course of the in person. In person, yeah, which you can't do anymore. This actually it probably could work over Zoom, the show, but it would yeah. be a little different. I'm fascinated by the logistics of it because they have someone has to book this show and know that you're not going to know who the person is. So how does it actually work? The producers put together what we started calling face sheets. And so it's just pages and pages and pages of celebrities. And I go through and I mark whoever I know and who I don't know. And then, of course, there's no name on it. (laughs) And then they go out to whoever I don't know. They reach out to their reps and say, hey, this is the show, here's a previous episode, and it's not like malicious or anything. And people have been so great and they have a great sense of humor about it, not taking themselves too seriously. And, and I feel like the feedback I get always from guests is that they always say, oh my gosh, every actor should be on this show. Yeah. Just um, a dose of humility. But yeah, it's it's basically, that's how it's done. And with Kaylee Cuoco, who came on, they, I guess, <laughs> they were so blown away that I had never seen her face. Or I, maybe I've seen her face. I just, she didn't yeah. look even remotely familiar to no me. No idea who she was, yeah. I can't remember if it was three or five times put her on a face sheet because they were like, there's no way she hasn't seen her. Like a different photo, maybe, yeah. Yeah, different photo, different angle. And I would be like, no, no, no. And then they showed it to me and they're like, wait, so you've never seen this person in your life. And I was like, never seen this person in my life. And so, but she was so fun to have on the show. She was such a great guest. Hi, welcome to Under a Rock with Tig Notaro. I'm Tig Notaro. I'm a comedian and I don't follow much pop culture or watch many TV shows or movies, so I have a really hard time recognizing famous people. But on this show, I interview famous people to try and figure out who they are. So please welcome this person. Good. Good. How are you? I'm great. So happy to be here. Are you? Yeah. I'm thrilled to have you here. <laughs> no clue though. None. Um, right? No, not yet. No. No. Okay. How how does that feel? It, it's it's new. It's new. Yeah. Yeah. 
I usually get it with the sound in my voice sometimes. Okay. Yeah, but maybe not. Are you a singer? No. Can not. you sing? No. Would you sing? I <laughs> I'll do anything you want me to. Absolutely. Two, three, and that's enough. That is enough. I mean, you said, you know, it's, it's different than going on a late night show, but I think you've, you've been such a great late night show guest over the years as well, just sort of bringing Thanks. a different energy to it than maybe some other people do. How do you approach going on late night shows? Do you think about what you want it to be before or do you just really go on there and do whatever it is that, that comes to mind or how, how do you think about it? Well, I mean, they have the uh, segment producer that goes over the questions beforehand and ideas and I'll pitch some ideas and then usually they're game for whatever. And I have an appearance on The Tonight Show coming up. So that makes me realize I, I, need, to, uh, <laughs> I need to start thinking about what to do. But yeah, I try, I think I try really hard to not push too hard. You know, I feel like there's nothing worse than seeing someone come out just with their arsenal of bits. Real, like just really, really... I'm going to do something. I'm not looking to do that, but I I feel like I have such a great, fun rapport with the late night hosts that I frequent. And I there's playful things that I feel like will speak to our dynamic. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, this would be so fun to, uh, like the time I acted like I got a text during my Conan appearance. <laughs> I felt like Conan would be, really great to do that with and I just ignored him through the segment essentially that's probably the show you've been on the most and you you guys do have such a great rapport I think the one that really sticks out to me and I think got a lot of attention at the time and since is when you pushed the stool around the uh the Conan set which I, I believe is something you'd been doing in your yeah. on stage but then it was kind of a a bold move to do that on a late night set was there any pushback because I know you usually have to run those things by the producers what you're going to do what was yeah. what kind of reaction did they get I think that was <laughs> the one time that they were a little hesitant and I said no it, it it works and there are awkward moments I've just been touring around doing this and I it gets awkward but they come around and they're like okay <laughs> you know like I, and it's such a weird pitch where I'm like yeah I'm gonna just be pushing a stool around the stage and and the craziest part was here I am trying to make my point that it works. And then it kind of wasn't working on the floor. I just grabbed the stool and I popped up to where Conan's desk is. And I- That wasn't planned? No, but I, I saw plexiglass and remembered that the floor is plexiglass <laughs> with lighting under it. And I was like, oh, I bet it'll make a good noise on plexiglass. So I popped up there and I started running it across there and it and it really made a noise. And Conan told me that to this day, his sound guy, the sound guy grabbed a sample of that and uses it to drive Conan insane from time <laughs> to time, where he'll just, while Conan's in rehearsals, he'll play that the stool. stool. <laughs> I was performing in Seattle and um, when I was on stage, I moved the stool next to me just slightly and it made this weird noise and it caused the entire audience to laugh collectively. And I was like, oh, that's all you guys needed? <laughs> so I just kept pushing the stool and they kept laughing. So I just kept pushing the stool 
And they stopped laughing. So I kept pushing the stool. They started laughing again. And it just kept going like that for a while, a good 10 minutes. So I was just curious what you guys would think if I pushed the stool here. Some of you aren't into it. <laughs> that doesn't offend me. If you're not, raise your hand. I'm not, if you want me to stop, a couple of you. <laughs> Maybe it's because you haven't heard it enough. <laughs> So what I want to do now is, is just run through a few more highlights from your career that I really enjoyed and see if there's a, a story or memory that kind of pops to mind. Okay. So one is one of your earliest uh, acting gigs, I believe, was playing Tig on the Sarah Silverman program. Mm -hmm. Officer Tig. Officer Tig, sorry. Yes, that's all right. <laughs> what do you remember about that experience? And was that sort of a, a big deal at the time to be on that show and, and working with Sarah? Oh my gosh, it was huge. I had only, I think, done one other acting job before that. And it was Zach Galifianakis brought me in to play this part on Dog Bites Man. And so Sarah had this role for me and I was so nervous and I just kept freezing up. And she was so supportive. I remember she... I, I, there's this scene where she opens the door and, you know, she thinks that she's attracted to me and I'm at the door of her apartment. She, when she opens it, I'm supposed to have this big monologue and I couldn't remember. And she kept opening the door and I was just silent. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And she said, we'll be right back. And so she took me into her office or trailer and she just grabbed my hands and had me jump up and down with her holding hands. And she's like, wee, wee, we're friends making a TV show. This is fun. Wee. And I was like, wee, I was so scared. Tig. Jay told me I could find you here. I didn't think I was ever gonna see you again. Yeah, neither did I. But I've always been the kind of person that runs from anything real or pursues what I can't have. And when you laid yourself out like that today, I realized I don't wanna be that kind of person anymore. I don't want to be that weird, lonely person whose only healthy relationship is with a dog. So, here I am, laying myself out. Wow. <laughs> and I really think about that all the time when I'm uncomfortable in an acting gig or feel like people around me are out of my league. And, and then I'm like, we're, we're making a TV show. We're filming a movie. This should be fun. Let's wee! And I'll just jump around <laughs> my trailer by myself. <laughs> That's great. Shortly after that, you uh, you made an appearance on The Office again, fairly early in your in your career. What do, what do you remember about uh, filming that? Oh no, um, not good things. <laughs> no, it was great in that 
It was such a great opportunity and it was such a fun day, supportive, talented people. I worked so hard at again, remembering my lines. <laughs> and here's what goes back to Under a Rock with Tignataro. Yeah. I had not ever seen The Office. <laughs> I've never told this story. It's embarrassing. It's funny. It's Stephanie's favorite story. I have never oh, told this I can't publicly. Wait to <laughs> I had never seen The Office. I, of course, knew what The Office was. I knew a handful of the people personally. So I worked so hard on learning my lines. And then I was brought on set. And as I was standing there, I'm looking at an entire conference room of the entire cast. And that's who was in that scene. And it came over me that, oh my gosh, I don't know who to direct my lines at <laughs> because I didn't know which character was which. Yeah. I, it didn't even <laughs> dawn on me that because while I was in my trailer I was, or wherever I was learning my lines, I was like, okay. And I say this and I say this. And, I, and then when I stood in there, I was like, oh no, <laughs> I don't know who these people are. I don't know who to, and I, I messed up several times and I'm sure nobody in that room thought that I hadn't seen the office. Right. They just assumed that you would know who was. Him. Of course. And I'm sure they were just like, what is her problem? Why is she directing that line at that, that so actor? Funny. And I went <laughs> home just mortified. I was so, and I remember I just told a, an actor friend of mine or Stephanie just told an actor friend of ours, that story. And that actor who is a real actor, very successful, very talented, was like, made some comment like, oh yeah, I see you did your, your research. <laughs> and I'm like, oh right, actors do their research. You know, I'm just going on set trying to learn my lines and a real actor would probably watch the show. Yeah, maybe see what the tone is. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, <laughs> not me. I was just like, oh cool, yeah, I'll do. Thanks, yeah, thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Here I come. <laughs> So my apologies to everyone that is on the hysterical. office. So talking about Stephanie, uh, you guys met on In a World, right? We did. What do you remember from working on that film and, and meeting her on that on set? Well, I mean, when I was working on In a World, I had three deadly illnesses at one time. So I remember that. That was right in that, uh, that time, yeah. Yeah, if you, the, the documentary TIG that's on Netflix, it shows that whole situation where... I'm doing that movie, but all the while I have pneumonia, I have invasive cancer, and I had an intestinal disease, and I didn't know it. And so I was just lying down between takes, and I just thought I had some sort of bug. But Stephanie was my love interest, and we had a great time. I, was, I had a girlfriend at the time, which was about yeah. to end, like everything else in my life. But yeah, I... I wasn't looking at Stephanie as a potential person to date. I was just having a great time interacting with her. Anyway, they're reinstating the hokey in a world gimmick and everybody's in a huff, I guess. Because it marks the rebirth of epic cinema. Whatever. I'm just glad it's a woman this time instead of a sweaty um, old man. I'll see, I'll see you guys. Yeah, congrats. Thank you for the drop in the broccoli. You should cut your hair. Stop trying to woo me by being mean. It doesn't work. You want to get a drink later? Okay. And then um, after I came out of 
all of my treatment and healing, I ran into her about a week later and in a world was going to Sundance and we exchanged numbers. And I told her, not even because I thought we were going to date, because I was single at the time, but I was just saying, oh, here's, yeah, there's my number, but also <laughs> don't abuse it. I was saying it in a joking way, but I was also really saying it in that I don't really like texting too much. And I said, yeah, I just went out with this girl that we went for coffee and she texted me after the afternoon coffee saying that was so fun. And then she knew I had a show that night and she texted me before the show saying, have a great show. And then I said that night when I was going to bed, I got another text from her saying, sweet dreams. And Stephanie was like, oh, don't worry. I hate texting too. And then that night when I got home and I was going to bed, <laughs> I got a text from Stephanie that said sweet dreams. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's, that's it. Very sweet. I'm marrying you. Um, I know around that time or somewhere around that time you were writing on Inside Amy Schumer and I was just rewatching this sketch where Amy kind of pretends to be your friend and sort of takes advantage of your cancer. But then that's when she said to me, I may be the one with cancer but you're definitely the one going to heaven. Oh. Who's going to heaven? You look great. What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be in bed or something? Oh, look at you and your sad little wig. Mm, it's actually my real hair, Amy. What are you doing here? I wanted to publicly thank you. Now that I'm all better, Amy has time to do anything for anyone. Will, will you do all of our podcasts? Oh, she'd love to. <laughs> and um, if anyone has a web series, she'd love to do all of those as well. Yes. I'm curious, is that something that you wrote? And is that, and how do you kind of feel about that sketch now? That is not, no, I didn't write that. I didn't write that. Were you comfortable with no. it? I mean, it's kind of a, it was a, I didn't write that sketch. Kind of a dark premise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I didn't really put too much thought at the time into it. And I just, did your role did the this yeah moved on the sketch yeah, yeah. moving on now <laughs> yeah moved on yeah fair enough i also was just rewatched your most recent special which i love my wife and i watched it on a, pl a plane when it came out on a trip and we were laughing really loudly on the on the plane to everybody's <laughs> probably annoying everyone around us we still ask each other when Yum Yum Donuts is opening. So Thank you. But I wanted to ask about the Indigo Girls bit um, because <laughs> I actually, I've seen you do it both ways because I, I saw you live uh -huh. do it where they don't come out and then in the special, spoiler alert, but they do come out. Is it funnier to you when they do come out or when they don't come out? It's, I enjoyed doing it. I mean, I toured the country without them coming out and and it was so fun to me to just, for those that haven't seen the bit, I announced that I'm closing my show with the Indigo Girls doing a quick performance. And there's just this mix of excitement. And then there's a dash of who are the Indigo Girls and why is this happening? And, oh, okay. Well, there's just like this mixed bag of, of everything in the audience. And I tease it, depending on the show, <laughs> I teased it anywhere from 15 to 35 minutes. It would, it would really go on. It was still fun even when they weren't there to say, okay, who <laughs> really wants the Indigo Girls to come out right now? And then everyone, like, even the people that didn't know who they were originally <laughs> are now just like, please bring these people out, whoever they are. And then I say, if you 
want to see the Indigo Girls, then buy a ticket to the Indigo Girls. And that was usually how it ended? Yeah, and then it, uh, <laughs> and then I would leave just being like, you guys are foolish. Why would the Indigo Girls close my show? That is the dumbest thing in the world. And then I just go back to my hotel room and laugh to myself. And sometimes the best part, too, was I was playing the same venues as the Indigo Girls. And sometimes in certain cities, they would be on the marquee for the following night or in a few nights, and people would really be like, maybe they're here. And then when they came out, it was, you know, I had them come out before I taped my special. I also did Carnegie Hall, and I had them come out on Carne- at Carnegie Hall, and I just sat on stage with them. And then when I filmed my special, and they agreed to close my special, I was going to do it the exact same way as I did at Carnegie Hall. And as I was finishing my tour and getting closer and closer to Houston, which is the city I I taped it in, I kept thinking, is there something else I can do to tie in? Like, and then it, it hit me. I mean, I play a little bit of drums and I thought, what if I hopped in and just joined them and played the drums? And i I practiced on my dashboard as my assistant drove us down the East Coast to Houston. And I really, I just kept playing the song over and over. And I felt really embarrassed when I texted Amy and Emily and said, can I play the drums with you? Because it just seemed like such a bold move to insert myself into their... Can I join the Indigo Girls? (laughs) Yeah, um, because even though I tell everyone that when I was playing with them, I didn't even know it was... a dream come true for me. I'd always dreamed of being <laughs> the fifth Beatle, but I never dreamed of joining the Indigo Girls, even though they're by far one of my favorite all-time bands. And they were both just like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And it was so uncomfortable. We ran through the song maybe like three times before the taping. And I'm not going to say who, I'm not going to say which one. They're both wonderful people. May have been the brunette, maybe not. May have <laughs> That's a call back to the special. That is one of those things where it's so fun for me to do as a a comedian. And I think it's also one of those moments where a lot of people in the audience are like, like, or just it's not even the funny part. But to me, (laughs) it stood out to me. Yeah, I don't know why it it amuses me to, to say that. But yes, it could be the brunette. It could be the other one. Yeah, yeah. But when we were practicing, it was interesting to find out one of them really wanted to get it down. <laughs> and so the pressure was on. I mean, it was like, you know, no, it's like, it's like this. It was like whiplash. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, drum, yeah. the drum instructor. And I was, and I thought, I, you know, and the other one was like, ah, oh, who cares? Let's just, we'll yeah, do our just for fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other one was like, no, it's like this. It's like yeah. this. And I was like, oh man. And so the pressure was really on. I think I, I pulled it off all right. I'm not a perfectionist. <laughs> the smile on your face really says it all when, when you're playing with them too. So Well, it, it ties in the happy to be here, which was very much happy to be alive, happy to be where I am in my life, happy to be with the Indigo Girls. My dream, I didn't know was my dream, but uh, happy to be on stage doing stand-up. It all, it all applies. Who here? is like 100%, 100% sure they're not over here. 
I have to admit, you are correct. They're on this side. Ladies and gentlemen, you're still falling for this. I can feel, you guys are like, why? Seriously, are they here? What's happening? The other thing I wanted to ask you about, just because I was curious if there are any updates on um, the show with Jennifer Aniston, First Ladies. Is that something that's still maybe happening at some point, or what's the... Well, it's actually it's, a, it's actually a movie. Oh, a movie, sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's ready to go. I think that Jennifer has the morning show with Reese Witherspoon, and I don't know as far as the pandemic or the schedule of... She, of I know they were partly through the second season of the morning show when this all hit. And so I just am very much all for returning when it is safe, a hundred percent safe to do so. And I know that Jen, as her close friends like myself call her, <laughs> are um I know Jen is very excited to do the project, as am I. And I know Netflix is, I know it's a big priority for everyone. Yeah. And it's ready to go. I mean, the script is ready to go. It's so fun. I can't, I can't even believe that I'm hopefully going (laughs) to get to star in that movie with her. And the premise is that she's the president and you're the the first lady. Is that right? Yeah. She's the first female president and I am, I'm the first lady. So, uh, yeah, I think movies have a good chance of being made because they're so in and out. You know, if you have to quarantine and get tested, you can shoot a movie in a month or two and you can go take over uh, an area. Everyone's kind of in the same place together. and yeah. yeah, whereas a TV series, I mean, I could be wrong, but a TV series seems a little harder because it just goes on for, I don't know, yeah. nine, ten months <laughs> and... I'm supposed to be going back to Star Trek and they're in good shape in Canada, but you know, I have to quarantine two weeks there. I have to quarantine on my way back. It's, it's a huge commitment and I hope it all works out, whether it's TV, film, stand up. I believe it or not, I have a new career that's in the works. That's not. Oh really? (laughs) Yeah. I've, like I said, this week is my eight Eight years ago on July 25th is my diagnosis date. And this last, even though I've been in remission this last May, my oncologist said that for the first time in eight years, they're not watching anything. They're not monitoring anything. And for like, even in my relationship with Stephanie, she's never been with me where we're not waiting on results or I'm not going in for some surgery. And I had spinal fusion a year ago and I was bolted together because my spine wasn't healing. And then I just got news yesterday that after going in for scans, my spine is fused. And so I don't have anything wrong with me for the first time <laughs> in eight years. <laughs> and, um, and so in my health journey, I have become very interested in healing myself and the power of a plant-based diet. And I started eating that way three years ago, and I've seen tremendous results. And I really am all about that. And I was reading this book the other day, a couple of weeks ago, a health related book. And while I was reading it, I thought, okay, what would it take 
for me to become a certified plant-based nutritionist. That's been my pipe dream. That's your dream? Yeah, that's been my dream for years. And people like Sarah Silverman, like my next door neighbor, they always contact me to ask what should they eat, what what meal, what snack, whatever to eat better. And I'm always trying to help and people trying to get toddlers to eat better. And, and I looked it up and I am in a six-week course to become a certified plant-based nutritionist. And Incredible. I'm going to start doing consultations. Aside from doing my podcast and hanging out with my family, I am studying. And I am I have a seventh grade education. I failed three grades, dropped out of high school. I got my GED. My cat ate my GED. It's framed in my office, half eaten. Mm-hmm. And I just want to get a certificate for plant-based nutritionist. And I'm going to hang it right next to my eaten GED, half-eaten GED. You'll be probably one of the funniest plant-based nutritionists out there, I would think. Well, that's what I'm hoping is that I can make it fun, interesting, and give people (laughs) some coaching, some meal plans. But man, is it it's truly a dream of mine. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Now you know. It's very exciting. (laughs) Well, Tig, you are one of the people who's made me laugh the hardest in my life. And uh, we end every episode by asking comedians, who is a, another comedian who has really just made you laugh the hardest in your life? It could be someone close to you that you know, or, you know, someone that, you, that you've seen growing up. Who comes to mind as someone that just that makes you laugh like no one else? Now, when I say this, please do not accuse me of trying to sound <laughs> <laughs> sugary sweet. Yeah. It is Stephanie Allen. Yeah. We are by far a normal couple with issues, problems, ups and downs, but we are going on eight years and nobody alive or dead in any, any famous, non-famous, nobody makes me laugh harder. She, (laughs) every day I would say we have like streaming tear (laughs) belly laughs together. And I never thought I've, I've certainly dated funny people and I never imagined because I've had, I've been surrounded by the greatest comedians of all time. They're some of my best friends and my heroes. And I never imagined that the person that I would Mary would make me laugh harder than every single one of them. And I mean that so earnestly. She makes me laugh so hard, sir. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for doing this. And I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks for your support. And thanks for promoting my nonsense over the years. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Anytime. Thank you again to Tig Notaro for coming on The Last Laugh. You can subscribe to Don't Ask Tig wherever you get your podcasts, and Army of the Dead is streaming on Netflix right now. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.